0: Halfway into the seven-year tribulation, as described in Revelation 6 through 19, we know that seven angels will blow seven trumpets. Agents of immediate judgment and ongoing warning. And this begins the final three and a half years, if my calculations are correct. And I, I could be off on that. I'm not gonna, you know, try to say it's absolute, but I'm pretty convinced that we see the first three and a half years happening in chapter 6, and then chapter 8 forward, we see the last three and a half years. But Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21, there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And so, with each sounding trumpet, God's judgments fall on the earth, begin to fall on the earth. And you need to note this, that the judgments are tailor-made. These are not random, arbitrary events. These are punishments to fit the crimes of humanity. And you need to look at it that way, that the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments when we get there, they have application directly to to the sin of mankind. They're not fly-off-the-handle thrashings. This is not an out-of-control father just saying, I'm just going to beat you. (laughs) He's responding, I believe, to the sin of man which with each trumpet judgment, each bowl judgment as it comes down, each one is intentional. Each one is perfect and purposeful and patently deserved. But along with this divine intentionality, we see amazing restraint especially with the trumpet judgments a a holding back if you will now you may wonder about that the first trumpet blows and hail and fire mixed with blood burn a third of the earth holding back you might say a second trumpet blows and a fiery mountain churns a third of the seas into blood restraint A third trumpet blows, and a burning star embitters a third of all potable water on the earth. A fourth trumpet blows, and the sun, moon, and stars are all dimmed by a third, a third of the earth's ecosystems, land, sea, water, a third of the light in the heavens. And yet, in each case, two-thirds are spared. There is twice the level of mercy as there is judgment. Because even by this point in earth's history, we deserve three out of three. And he only begins with a third. And speaking of a third, it's the third trumpet judgment that gave me pause. So one that I, I read and, and I went on with my study and I started actually, got stuck there for a while. And after I had several pages of notes just on that, I thought, wow, I think this is Sunday morning. I think there's more here the Lord wants us to know. And in fact, I will tell you, I think what we're going to talk about this morning only begins the conversation. We may have some more we have to deal with on Wednesday night. But with that, that in mind, listen again to verses 10 and 11 of Revelation chapter 8. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water, so fresh water. And the name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. A falling, burning star with a name attached to it. This is not like Cassiopeia. This is wormwood. Ho Absentos in the Greek, or La'ana in the Hebrew, for we see it in both places. By the way, remember, I told you when we started Revelation that there are over 500 Uh, direct quotations, inferences, and references to the Hebrew Scriptures to be found in the 22 chapters of Revelation. More than any other book, this book references back, looks back to the Hebrew Scriptures. You will see that fully this morning. But we have this absinthos, this wormwood. Wormwood is an herb that produces a bitter oil. It grows in waste places. And it's written here, interestingly, as a name. A star is called Wormwood. It's a masculine name. That gives it a strange identity, which is worth thinking about, and that's what we may have to wait until Wednesday to consider a little bit more. But it's only used here in the New Testament Scriptures, only in verse 11, twice. Once as a name, and then once as an effect. The star is called Wormwood, and the waters became Wormwood because of this falling star. La'ana, again, is the Hebrew word. It's used eight times in the Old Testament. We'll look at every one this morning. It is always in association with bitterness. Wormwood and bitterness always go together. And if ingested, this herb, this plant oil, causes convulsions, paralysis, and death. Wormwood. Now, it's interesting to take these four trumpet judgments, and as we implied on Wednesday night, it's interesting to compare them to the fallout of a nuclear holocaust. Because if you just track it through and consider what is described in the four trumpet judgments, it sounds like a nuclear fallout leading into nuclear winter. We mentioned that briefly on Wednesday. I find that fascinating because the parallels are intriguing and some think that's exactly what's going on. I've heard it taught that way, that this is a nuclear war that is being described in Revelation chapter 8. I don't think so. I think the parallels are there. I think the inference is there, but, but I don't think it's by human hands that all this is taking place. In fact, the Bible is clear. Angels are blowing trumpets and judgments are coming. This isn't mankind going after mankind. This is the Lord sending judgment and warning. But think about this. The immense destructive power of a nuclear bomb is the result of a sudden release of energy that happens when the atomic nuclei is split. It doesn't take a human to do that. In fact, we're doing something with something that is already created. Who created the atom? Who created the subatomic particles? Or for that matter, who created every particle? Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. 2 Peter 3.10, he says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. The elements. Peter was a scientist. Who knew? A nuclear scientist. The fisherman understood something about the elements and the elemental things. He's describing something In 2 Peter chapter 3, that I believe takes place later after the millennial kingdom, as far as the destruction of the entire world. But his language indicates something to us, and that is a principle right here in Scripture that the elemental building blocks, the subatomic particles, have explosive properties. The world goes nuclear because we figured out how to take those properties and split them causing the energy of a nuclear blast. No wonder these judgments here are comparable to a nuclear holocaust. But get this, only God, only God has the merciful restraint to do this and yet spare the world. And that's another proof to me that this is not man on man, that these are judgments of God because they are judgments within restraint. If we got into a nuclear war, where would it end? But the Lord knows how to use what He has created, both for warning here and for judgment. Well, what's all that got to do with Wormwood? Think about that with me for a moment. Back in the late 1950s, the USA tested the hydrogen bomb, a bomb codenamed Castle Bravo. We made those tests in the Bikini Atoll of the Marshall Islands, and we learned a few things that were interesting at the time. Some were quite unexpected. First of all, we learned that we were not prepared. We set this thing off and expected a 6 megaton yield, but we got 15 megatons of energy. Far bigger than anyone thought. The fallout went further and the devastation was more severe than anyone expected at the time. Another unforeseen result was huge hailstones I think I mentioned this Wednesday night, that the sea was churned up in that explosion, went up into the sky, was frozen and returned, falling on naval vessels, get this, over 500 miles away. That's a big blast. The radioactive fallout of Castle Bravo covered 7,000 square miles. There was the introduction, a third thing that we didn't know would happen, of a poisonous substance... That's referred to as strontium-90. 90. Strontium-90 90 is a radioactive isotope and it functions like calcium. That is, when it gets into the human system, it goes straight for the bones. Bones and teeth. They call it the bone seeker. Strontium-90. It didn't even exist on planet Earth until the 1950s, until the nuclear test. It's still detectable to this day in the Bikini Atoll, on which the soil is still infertile, the water is still bitter and undrinkable. And by the way, if you were reading, if you happen to be reading a Russian translation of the Scriptures this morning, the word wormwood here, absinthos in the Greek, is not translated wormwood, in the Russian Bible is translated Chernobyl. Chernobyl. In the early morning hours of April 26, 1986 in the now abandoned town of Pripyat in the northern Ukraine, then the USSR, the number four light water graphite moderator reactor at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant exploded. One man was killed instantly by the steam. Another died of a lethal dose of radiation. 237 people suffered acute radiation sickness, of whom 31 more died in the first three months. Cancer-related deaths are estimated to be at about 4,000 from the nuclear accident so-called at Chernobyl. 5,722 casualties were reported beyond that within 10 years of the disaster among the Ukrainian uh, rescue and emergency workers. It was a big deal. Chernobyl, wormwood. This is all history. But I share it with you to, to paint a picture here, and that is that a, a third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water, and the name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Is the bitterness frontium 90. Is this nuclear in in its designation and what's taking place? I, I don't know, but I know what the Bible tells us is coming and will happen. But then we have to ask the question, why this judgment? Why would God choose such a fallout in judgment and mourning of the sin of mankind? Why such a bitter judgment? I think it's because bitterness is already a catalyst of sin in our world. It is bitterness in judgment of bitterness. Acrimony, animosity, hatred, self-righteous indignation. We've been watching it play out on the news all week long. All of these plague our social interactions on a level that I have not seen in my lifetime. And when I talk to people my age and older... I'm getting this. Everywhere I look, everyone I talk to, people shaking their heads. I just don't get the vitriol in our world. The spewing of of hatred. The rush to judgment. The anger that we see among people. It it doesn't make sense. I, I understand it on a small scale. I've seen it on a small scale. We've all dealt with bitterness either toward us or us feeling it toward another at some point in our lives, but it's always managed, always on a little scale, always just kind of a a rolling of the eyes at some other person or someone walks by and you go, you know, but that's about as bad as it used to be or so it seemed. Now it's just busted wide open. I, I haven't seen this kind of activity, anger, hatred on a social public scale. Bitterness. I mean, it's always been it's always been existent and in the ailing human heart we've always dealt with it as I said but it seems to be coming up like acid reflux (laughs) right now. And the Bible warns brothers and sisters in Christ listen carefully the Bible warns against bitter wormwood conduct. It is not becoming certainly of believers. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That's what happens with the acid of bitterness. It gets all over people nearby. It affects innocent people. It affects those who have no idea what's going on. I've seen it in churches, and that's a devastating place where one person's bitterness can spill out on others and cause division and cause heartache and pain. And so the Hebrew pastor says, don't let it happen. Keep your eyes open. Don't come short of the grace of God. That is, don't come short of practicing the very grace that has saved you, that has saved me. We live by grace. We extend grace to each other because grace has been extended to us. And so while I might get a bitter taste in my mouth because I'm treated some way, at the end of the day, it's mine to return grace. Otherwise, many may be defiled. Is, is there a root of bitterness in your life? Is there something going on with you, between you and, and another person? Is there an old wound that is untended? Perhaps a, a contention that's unresolved? Unresolved? if so, the warning from Scripture, I believe, would be that we may have radiation in the soil of the heart. And I believe the Lord wants to tend to it this morning. Now this is interesting to me because this will be a a little bit different than all of our other Revelation studies. So far we've been, you know, working our way verse by verse and looking at the nuances of Revelation and seeking to understand everything, but we're going to leave the book this morning for the rest of our time. And we're going to track down bitterness in the Hebrew Scriptures. So I want you to turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 29 this morning. Deuteronomy 29. And let's see if we can understand Wormwood from a bitterness perspective and what kind of fallout it actually causes. Deuteronomy chapter 29. Now at the beginning of this chapter, Moses... Speaking on behalf of God is bringing a covenant to Israel. Now they've already had the covenant at Mount Sinai. They're now in Moab on the outskirts of the promised land. And this is another covenant, an additional covenant that is given. It's also, while additional, unconditional. This is God's word and what God is going to do. Now, you could say it's conditional in terms of the fact that if the people don't listen and don't keep their part, they're going to be driven out of the land because this is the land covenant. But the way the covenant is given and written in Deuteronomy 29 and 30 is God is saying, this is going to happen. This is what I'm going to do. So listen as we begin Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 1. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he had made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. short version, you're still not getting it. I've led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out. And your sandal has not worn out on your foot. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or strong drink, in order that you might know, now the Lord speaking, that I am the Lord your God. I've taken you through all this to teach you, to train you, to show you who I am, the Lord is saying. Now skip down to verse 9. So keep the words of this covenant to do them, that you may prosper in all you do. You stand today, all of you, before the Lord your God, your chiefs, your tribes, your elders, and your officers, even all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the alien who is within your camps. From the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into the covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath, which the Lord your God is making with you today, in order that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God. Just as He spoke to you, and as He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, not with you alone am I making this covenant in this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God, and with those who are not with us here today. For you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. Moreover, you have seen their abominations and their idols of wood, stone, silver, and gold, which they had with them, so that, note this, so that, what's he saying? Keep this covenant, so that, verse 18... There will not be among you a man or a woman or a family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord your God to go and serve the gods of those nations, that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. It's the first mention of wormwood in the Bible. First time we see this root of bitterness, this idea of wormwood. So what's the point? Moses is warning against the bitterness of rebellion. And truly, I I think we could say that all bitterness roots itself into rebellion against God. In in one form or another, there is an amount of rebellion taking place. Whether it's overt rebellion, people completely rejecting God, or it's subtle rebellion, people rejecting the extension of the grace of God that was given to them. But it's rebellion. The bitterness of rebellion. Note that. Jot that down. This is a form of bitterness to understand. Because what it describes in its most obvious form, is going after other gods, governors, or guidance. The root of bitterness comes from rebellion. The personal question for you or me this morning is, what guides your heart? Who do you listen to? Who is your governor? Who is your God in this world? Who do you go to for direction or authority or wisdom or leadership? Because when a heart rebels, which is very simply to turn away from God and turn to someone or something else, when that takes place, the result is always bitterness. It's a bitter root. And bitterness is first self-destructive, and as we saw in Hebrews, it becomes others' destructive, defiling those near you. See to it, no one comes short of the grace of God that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. This covenant was with Israel, but it's a picture, because Israel is a picture of what happens when a person is in relationship with God, but rebels against that relationship or, or rejects God. And that's what Israel has done. They've spurned their God, and historically we see the sorrowful result In Israel, a people who have been more bitter and invitered than anyone in all history. They know bitterness. The Jewish people understand what it means to live a life with wormwood. Look at verse 22 of chapter 29. Now the generation to come your sons who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a distant land when they see the plagues of the land and the diseases with which the Lord has afflicted it they will say all its land is brimstone and salt a burning waste unsown and unproductive and no grass grows in it like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah Adma and Zeboim which the Lord overthrew in his anger and his wrath and by the way now I'm forgetting his name Samuel Clemens, thank you, Mark Twain, when Mark Twain visited the promised land in the mid-1800s, and you can read about his journey there in his book, Innocence Abroad, what's described here as a land of complete waste is exactly what he saw, that this prophecy of what would happen to the land of Israel happened exactly, it was a complete waste place. And verse 24, the Lord says through Moses, all the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to the land? Why this great outburst of anger? And then men will say, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which He made with them when He brought them out of the land of Egypt. So the sorrowful result is what happened to Israel because they broke the covenant because they rebelled against God and the result was utter bitterness. Jeremiah witnesses this describes this as he watched the last vestiges of the kingdom of Judah and the fallout of the Babylonian invasion In 586 B.C., Jeremiah wrote the following. This is Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 13. Because they have forsaken My law, which I set out before them, and have not obeyed My voice, nor walked according to it, but have walked after the stubbornness of their heart, and after the bales, as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood, and give them poisoned water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known and I will send the sword after them until I have annihilated them. And again, I ask you, has anyone known bitterness in history like Israel has known bitterness? It is the picture of rebellion. Rebel against God and that's the outcome. And with the trumpet judgment, God is warning against that. Even at that late date in the earth's history, this bitterness is going to leave you wasted completely. Wiped out. If you don't turn from it right now, turn back to the Lord. God has been trying through all history to get all humanity's attention that we would not turn away from our Creator, God. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you have turned away, and you ask the question, well, what if, I, what if I've turned away? Is this my end result? If you've turned away, turn back. That's the word repent. Which is not such a churchy word after all. Just turn back to Jesus. Turn back to God. If you've been wandering on your own little path, In a mini-rebellion. Over the last week or month or year. Turn back. Turn back. What will God do if I turn back? He'll do Deuteronomy chapter 30, which is an entire book, an entire chapter of restoration. Look at verse 1. Deuteronomy 30 verse 1, So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you and you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today you and your sons then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you restoration doesn't matter how far away you have been banished how far away you've wandered even after they turn away israel is this beautiful picture about how god maintains his heart for a people he has maintained a fantastic awesome plan for israel's return and we've said many times in here if god doesn't ultimately restore israel as he promised he would If he isn't faithful to Israel as he said he would be, what in the world makes us think he'll ever be faithful to us? He must follow through. And in fact, Isaiah prophesied as much, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11. It will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people. Listen, God's only recovered his people once. When they came back to the land out of Babylonian captivity. But you know, they were driven out of the land again in AD 70. Dispersed among all the nations of the world. And we are seeing the restoration happen before our very eyes in this generation. Something no one expected except for, you know, Bible students. We're seeing the Lord recover again a second time from all the nations of the world, His people. He's, you know what He's doing right now? It's remarkable. He's restoring even before they're asking for it. He's laying the groundwork for a massive ingathering that will take place during the tribulation as Israel floods into the land and is restored to God. My friends, it's amazing that this is happening before our eyes and will ultimately happen at a spiritual, eternal level. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on Me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over Him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And through that weeping, through that gazing upon the pierced one comes salvation and restoration and keep this in mind because it is the key to dealing with bitterness it's where we're going this morning hand hand looking on the one whom they have pierced by the way it's not just they have pierced we could very easily say looking upon the one whom we have pierced because it's my sin that held him on the cross it's my sin that drove Jesus like nails and it's my sin that he died for. But hold that thought. Another example now of wormwood. Go forward to the book of Proverbs, chapter 5. Proverbs, chapter 5. We've already seen two examples, even though I only gave it to you as one. That is the bitterness of rebellion. Jeremiah mentions it, and of course we see it in that covenant of Deuteronomy 29. But now in Proverbs 5, we see another application of this wormwood bitterness, beginning in verse 1. Solomon writing says, My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion, and that your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. In the end, she is as bitter as wormwood. second thing to note here in the application of wormwood is the bitterness of adultery. The bitterness of adultery. One of the devil's most insidious lies is that a man or a woman can find better elsewhere. Something's better. It's got to be better than this marriage. Something else outside of this current situation. I can find better, we're lied to, we think, in the arms of another who gets me more than she does. This person understands me. She doesn't. You know what? The truth is, she does understand you. That's your problem. (laughs) You know, the other doesn't know, doesn't get you, doesn't understand. Therefore, you're getting away with all kinds of stuff. But she who knows you, she's got you. She's got you pegged. You are fully understood. The old charms no longer work on her. Hey, baby. Yeah, I know what you want. (laughs) You know what? Something I have learned and I can just tell you, and those of you who are young married, early married, or pre-married, you're just going to have to take my word for it. The best place to be is in a marriage where you are fully known. Where you can't get away with anything. I chuckle at this from time to time. Because Cheryl knows me inside out. I can give her a look and she'll say, not now. And I'll be like, what? (laughs) To be known by another person such that my magnetism no longer works. (laughs) To be loved anyway. You know what that is? Agape. It's agape. To, co- to look into the eyes of someone who knows you at your worst and see that they still love you that's agape and when a marriage experiences agape man that's beautiful but you know what it takes time it takes patience it takes mileage and a whole lot of forgiveness along the way but but adultery and the whole picture of adultery trying to go outside of the marital relationship It's the key to bitterness. It is a bitter place to go. Which is why, by the way, in contrast to the bitterness of the adulteress, if you look further down in the chapter, Proverbs 5.18, he says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. And I know that's a graphic picture, but men and women, this is the key. In marriage, satisfy each other so that no one goes looking to a stranger for satisfaction. And that satisfaction is emotional, and it is physical, and it is spiritual finding your satisfaction in each other well but she's just being a well he's just being you know i understand because i've been really hard to live with at times over the years there are times today i'm i'm kid you not i look at my wife and i wonder why is she still here what amazing patience or utter blindness i mean it's one of the two But you know what? Where adultery is concerned, there obviously is the physical ramification. It's also the spiritual. I mean, Jesus said, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. Some idiot would think, oh, well, if I already have, might as well. No! (laughs) What Solomon is teaching here and what we understand in this wormwood concept is that adultery is bitter. It is bitter. The end of it is bitter. It may seem sweet and seductive and secretive up front, but it ends in utter bitterness and pain and sorrow. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. See, no one gets let off the hook here. The wife does not have authority over her own body. Now, see, this is one of those examples... In the Bible, where men especially, we don't want to read half a verse and try to use that because it'll get you into trouble. The Bible says the wife does not have authority over her own body. Guys, she's probably read the verse. Yeah. She'll probably respond. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body. The husband has authority over the body of the wife. The wife has the authority over the body of the husband. And so Paul says, Stop depriving one another. And he's talking about sex. Stop depriving one another except for agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And by the way, wives, telling your husband you're just in a prayerful mood doesn't work. (laughs) Paul is talking about satisfaction. And he's talking about affection. And he's talking about putting the needs of the other before the needs of the self. He's talking about doing whatever we need to do to keep bitterness out of a marriage. And it comes from openness, and it comes from honesty, and it comes from recognizing that you're not going to find something better anywhere else. James Dobson years and years ago called it the straight line. And it's really interesting to see what people do in relationship. A couple will get married and they'll, they'll go along together for a while and then they start to have their issues and problems and then person A in the couple will see someone outside and go, oh, I want that! And there's a break. But Dobson says, you know what happens? They get together with the other person and you know what they try to do? Normalize as quickly as they can. To get back into a a, a parallel... Now you're walking together again. It's with someone else. But you try and get back into this normal relationship until the issues and the problems start to come in again. Which they will. Because put a human being with a human being, you're going to have problems. That's the way it works. And ultimately, break happens. But then, that person wants to get back to the straight line. You're always trying to get back to the straight line because our hearts know what works and what's good. The problem is with these breaks comes bitterness. And few things in our world cause deeper bitterness than adultery. Or than a marriage destroyed by adultery. And that's whether you are the offender or the victim. Bitterness is the result. What do I do? We're getting there. We're going to talk about what you do. But first, got to show you some more bitterness. Some more wormwood to see. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23. The Bible describes the bitterness of rebellion, turning away from God. The Bible describes the bitterness of adultery, turning away from a spouse. Number three, the bitterness of deceit. The bitterness of deceit. Verse 15 of Jeremiah 23. Just one verse here. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I am going to feed them wormwood and make them drink poisonous water, for from the prophets of Jerusalem pollution has gone forth into all the land. God sees it. He tags them on it. You cannot pollute, get this, you cannot pollute others with lies and false prophecy and deception without poisoning yourself. This is what the liar doesn't understand, at least up front. As you lie, you poison your own heart. As you deceive, in any situation, you embitter yourself. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap Corruption, But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There is bitterness that grows in a deceptive heart. In a heart that, that's skirting the edges. And if you've been playing games with God, if you've been pretending faith, see, that's deceptive. Lying to yourself, it's all good. I got to church, you know, last month. If you're playing with God and you're deceiving yourself and others... Perhaps in life or in business, in a marriage, bitterness is coming. Bitterness is a result of deception. Pray it doesn't come from a star called Wormwood. Pray that bitterness is dealt with before that comes. But what's interesting is now Jeremiah uses the word for himself. Turn over now to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. And I'm moving quickly on a couple of these, just for time's sake, but the bitterness of turning from God, bitterness of rebellion, the bitterness of adultery and breaking a marriage covenant, the bitterness of deceit, lying to self or others or lying to God and playing games. And then Jeremiah says in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 15, "He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood." He's broken my teeth with gravel. He's made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness, so I say my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. This is Jeremiah, and he talks about number four, the bitterness of sorrow. This one's interesting because this is not as a result of sin on your part or my part. This is just sorrow. And it may be sorrow that comes of the sin of others. It may be sorrow that comes of a great loss. In Jeremiah's case, he's called the weeping prophet. He is depressed. He is despairing. And Jeremiah says, sorrow has a bitter taste. Do you understand what he means? Sorrow has a bitter taste. Jeremiah didn't rebel. Jeremiah was the one prophet standing up in Jerusalem saying, Jerusalem will fall. God is sending Babylon. The temple will burn. Jeremiah is prophesying all of this coming. It's going to be bad. All the other prophets, no, 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 as long as we have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord will be fine. It's all good. Just huddle up in Jerusalem. God will protect us. Jeremiah is saying, no, he won't. And yet what happened after all of his true prophesying, Jeremiah felt the same bitterness. His bitterness was that of sorrow. He didn't pollute people with false prophecy, but he was also a victim of the calamities that fell on Judah and Jerusalem. Jeremiah tasted wormwood in all of his sorrow. You may be in that place. I didn't do anything to deserve this, you might think. You may say, I'm watching this fall apart around me. You know, I feel a certain amount of sorrow just for our country. I look at America now versus America when I was a kid, and I'm sorrowful. There's There's not a good taste when we see the things that we're seeing. But here's the thing about a sorrowful bitterness, a bitterness that causes sorrow. You can have one of two responses. Sorrow always brings one of two responses. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret. That is, you're turning right back to God. The sorrow of the world produces death. One of the primary examples, we've used this many times in the scriptures, is Judas and Peter. Both betrayed both intensely sorrowful. In fact, the Bible tells us that Peter, after betraying Jesus, after denying Him, Peter went out and wept how? Bitterly. Peter tasted bitter sorrow. So did Judas when he realized who he had betrayed and what had gone on. Judas' sorrow was bitter. What did Judas do? He went out and hung himself until his body snapped and his bowels gushed out. Acts chapter 1. It's gross, but read it. That's a sorrow that produces death. Peter was sorrowful with a godly sorrow that led him to repentance. That's Jeremiah. That's Jeremiah. He has a godly sorrow and it leads to repentance. Now again you might say, but I thought Jeremiah didn't do anything wrong. I thought he prophesied correctly. How could he repent? His sorrow turned him to God. So it's not necessarily that he repented from sin, but he repented from himself. Sometimes we need to repent from ourselves. Have you ever thought about it that way? You haven't sinned, you haven't done something wrong, you're just bummed, you're depressed, you're sorrowful. Repent. Turn away from yourself and turn to God. Turn back and look to Him. Because that's where the solution comes. That's when the bitterness gets washed away and the sorrow produces repentance without regret. And you can again be filled with joy. Watch this. In the same chapter, Jeremiah, after just saying his hope was gone, his strength has perished, in verse 21 he says, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Wait a minute, go back. Verse 19, Remember my affliction, he prays, and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. So he's in this place. And then he says this, I recall to mind. Therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. Do you see what Jeremiah just did? He repented. He turned from himself and he turned to God. Remember in the trumpet judgments, there will be twice as much mercy as judgment. Because the Lord is still trying to call people to repent. To turn to Him. To trust in Him. And what's marvelous in that understanding is that the nature of God, while 100% just and perfect, is also 100% chesed, loving kindness, grace, mercy. Now speaking of justice, there's one more dose of wormwood in the Bible we have to see. And it's a judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel. So turn now to Amos. Keep going to the right. Amos chapter 5, verse 6. Amos chapter 5, verse 6. This is now 150 years, just to get some placement. Before Jeremiah, before the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah, this is the northern ten tribes, the northern kingdom of Israel, about whom Amos is prophesying. And Amos chapter 5, verse 6, the prophet writes, Seek the Lord that you may live, or he will break forth like a fire, O house of Joseph, and it will consume with none to quench for Bethel, for those who turn justice into wormwood and cast righteousness down to the earth. Skip over to chapter 6, Amos chapter 6, verse 12. Do horses run on rocks? Or does one plow them with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Number five in our list. So we've got the bitterness of rebellion. We have the bitterness of adultery. The bitterness of, I can't, what? Deceit. The bitterness, what's number four? The bitterness of sorrow. You're, good. You're so good. Number five, the bitterness of injustice. The bitterness of injustice. You've turned justice into injustice, and the result is bitterness. The bad taste. Injustice, unfairness, ungodly adjudication. It all comes back on our own heads. It's going to come back on America's, by the way, for how we have treated the innocents unborn. There is judgment that must come for all that's taken place in terms of simply the abortions in our country, much less the unjust or unjust things that have taken place in this nation that are an affront to God, but are behind the bitterness, this vitriol, this anger, this hatred that we're seeing go around, it has a root. And that root is sin. Sin. And the sin in our country, we're seeing it. I, I used the phrase acid reflux before because that's what sin does. It, it buries and it burns and it bubbles around and we don't really think there's any result and all of a sudden, oh. we feel it coming up. We see it emerging. It's this injustice. Listen, if if you or I are unfair or unjust to other people, personally, it's going to produce bitterness in us. If I treat someone unfairly or in an ungodly way, I will end up bitter because of it. And the truth is, our perfect, righteous, just God cannot tolerate, will not tolerate injustice of any kind. Thus, the trumpet and the bull judgments are coming on this world. Because he has to judge. We concluded with that on Wednesday night. He has to judge. And there's an aspect in all of us that wants him to. I want justice. I want it to be fair. How many times, you parents, have you heard your kids say, that's not fair? Well, I've just taken to say to my kids, don't worry, God will make it fair. You may feel like it's not fair right now. God will make it fair. Justice is coming. You know, I hear Naomi off in a corner going, Bring those trumpet judgments on my dad. No, (laughs) whatever. All of this is coming. All of these very real judgments that we've been looking at, they're coming, but they're deserved. Rebellion, adultery, deceit, sorrow, injustice are all producers of, and by the way, they're all produced by bitterness, and God must judge these things. What do we do with this? That was what I asked God earlier this week. Okay, I've seen all these different results of bitterness or causes of bitterness. What what do we do with this? What if I'm bitter right now? What if I'm I'm, I'm bitter by my own doing or by someone else's doing? What if I'm tasting bitterness? What do I do? You turn to Matthew chapter 5. So go ahead and do that. Matthew chapter 5. In verse 43. And by the way, the answer to all of this is so much better than a Tums. Have you ever dealt with, you know, sour stomach or acid reflux, and you take a Tums and it settles everything down? Oh, it's good. All right. It's good to go. And the next day, you're pulling out the Tums bottle again. Because we, you know, our remedies tend to just kind of. Solve the problem for the time being. This is a remedy. Listen, this is a remedy to bitterness that has eternal result. Jesus is speaking in Matthew chapter 5 verse 43. He's, he's giving that famed Sermon on the Mount and he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Do not even the Gentiles do the same? I mean, everybody does that, Jesus says. But verse 48, He says, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, great. That's my problem. I'm not perfect. Well, be perfect. I've tried. I had this conversation when I was a, a boy, probably 8, 9 years old, talking to my mom about perfection. And she put out there, "We we want to strive for perfection." And I strove for years, and I never got there. Still haven't gotten there. You know, how how in the world can I be perfect? Skip on over to Luke chapter six. Luke chapter six. In another place, I, I believe Jesus is now giving. Similar or, or parallel teaching to the Sermon on the Mount, and in Luke chapter six, verse 35, he repeats, "Love your enemies." You got it? Luke 6:35Love your enemies, and do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. And then Jesus says, Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And I hear Jesus in both statements. And it sounds like a marvelous, wonderful remedy, but I don't know how to get there. How on earth am I supposed to be perfect as my Heavenly Father is perfect? How am I supposed to be merciful as my Father is merciful? I'm only human. And so was Jesus. And so was Jesus. A man who had every right to be the most bitter ever to walk the face of the earth. And He was fully man. Don't miss that truth. He was absolutely human. Yes, He was also fully God. But He even set aside the glory, the power. He emptied Himself, Philippians 2 tells us. Becoming in the form of of a man just a human being i'm only human i say so was jesus and being fully man jesus brought the cure for bitterness and wormwood and there's only one cure there's only one that will wash the bitterness out of your life my life that will cure us of the poison of wormwood only one cure remember the story it's in Exodus chapter 15 verse 22. Moses led Israel away from the Red Sea. They went out into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and they found no water. And they came to a place called Mara. And they went, a big pool of water. Oh, wonderful. They go to drink. They couldn't drink because the waters were bitter. And the name Mara means bitterness. So they come to the place of bitterness in the wilderness of Shur. They're dying of thirst. And they grumble at Moses, that's what we do. What shall we drink? (laughs) So Moses turns to the Lord, cries out to him, the Lord showed him a tree. And Moses cut down the tree and threw it into the waters and the waters became sweet. What a potent picture. What a marvelous truth. You wander through the wilderness dying of thirst. By the way, did, did you hear about the Arab? wandering the wilderness, dying of thirst. say water, I just need water, he said. And he just kept crawling, and, and, and he saw up ahead, there, there was a stand in the middle of the wilderness. He got up there, and it was a, a tie salesman, right there in the wilderness. I know, weird, right? A, a Jewish tie salesman. <laughs> And the Arab said, water, I need water. And the, the Jewish tie salesman said, would you like to buy a tie? <laughs> water, don't you have any water? No, but I have lovely ties. Would you like to buy? I need water. And so finally the Jewish tie salesman said, you know, there, there's a village about 40 miles to the east. They have water there. So off he goes, crawling. Like two weeks go by. Two weeks. And here he comes, crawling back on the sand. Just, he looks obviously worse for the wear, throat burning, comes up, there's the Jewish tie salesman. Water! I need water! Well, didn't you go to the inn that I told you to go to, to get water? Yes, but they, but they wouldn't let me in without a tie! <laughs> so we tell it on the tour bus in Israel, because it's just such a good one. Anyway! Anyway! <laughs> You're in the wilderness. You're dying of thirst. You've got a bitter taste in your mouth. Nothing will get rid of it. The only thing that can make bitter water sweet is a tree called Calvary. The cross. The cross of Calvary. Now, I could leave it right there. And we could all walk out of here going, yes, the cross. Isn't that cool? The cross takes away bitterness. And long about somewhere in the mid-afternoon, someone would go... How How does that actually practically work? Because it sounds really nice. Listen, don't spiritualize it. Don't spiritualize the cross just looking at it and going, oh, the wonderful cross. Why? Why is it so wonderful? And by the way, don't ritualize the cross either saying, I know what I need. I have bitterness in my heart. I need a double dose of communion. <laughs> That's what we do with stuff like this. We spiritualize, we ritualize. Just look at the cross. Just look at it. What is it about that tree that makes bitter water sweet? Luke 23, they came to the place called the skull. And there they crucified Him and the criminals, one on the right, the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's it. That's how the wood of the cross makes the bitter water sweet. The cure to bitterness is always forgiveness. It starts with the forgiveness of God. Receiving His forgiveness for all the sin and and bitterness of my life, He forgives. He bought forgiveness. He proved forgiveness. And He showed it on the cross. But it extends beyond there. The sweetness comes when we look at each other, when we look at other people the way Jesus looked at us. When I can look at someone who has harmed me in one way or another, maybe they've deceived me. Maybe there's just been rebellion in their heart. Maybe it's an adultery. Maybe it's injustice. Maybe it's just sorrow. But when I can look at another person and say, Father, forgive them. And at the same time, I recognize they don't know what they're doing. That will cure bitterness. That will take it away. They don't know what they're doing. See, our assumption is everybody knows exactly what they're doing and what they've done to me and they need to pay for it. They need to own up. They need to deal with it. They may not know what they were doing. I can almost guarantee no matter what someone does, no matter how intentional they may seem, they don't know the full extent of what they're doing. Sin really does know what it's doing. It just causes us or calls us to do. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Paul said in Ephesians 4:31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another and tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. How did Jesus forgive you? From the cross He said, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive like that. Because I'll tell you, the world is full up with bitterness. Overflowing with poison. It it, it is consuming. It's destroying. And God is ultimately, finally going to rain down a star called Wormwood. Star called Wormwood, a star with a name. Why is that? We'll talk about that Wednesday night. But he's going to rain down in perfect judgment of humanity's sinful bitterness. That end is coming, right now, today. Before that day, he offers you and me something completely different. He offers return from rebellion. He offers restoration from adultery. Truth against deceit, loving kindness in our time of sorrow and justice for all our injustices, and it all comes through the blood that flowed in the forgiveness of Jesus enabling us to be free of bitterness. And you know what Jesus said? He said in John 7:37, if anyone is thirsty, Let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in Me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word to us this morning. And Lord, I pray if anyone is struggling with any aspect of the forms of bitterness that You highlighted in Your Word, I pray, Lord, that Your Spirit will draw each of us to You. Father, there's not a person in here this morning that doesn't need to, at some level, repent. And we understand that repentance is not always from sin. It can even be from self. So would You today cause us just to turn and look to You? Look to and listen to, Jesus, what You spoke, those words of forgiveness. Father, I pray for relief from bitterness. If any brother, any sister here this morning has a bitter taste, Father, would You bring through forgiveness and the offering of forgiveness, would You bring the sweet water of Your Spirit? Forgive us, Lord, our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. And let all bitterness be driven far from us as we follow after Jesus and seek to be, Lord, perfect and merciful as You are. In Jesus' name, Amen. Won't you come?